Let's, let's pray together. Our Father, that is our desire this morning. That's my desire that, that we would behold the glory of God, the magnificence of his amazing grace. So our Father, I pray that you would lead us into that place where our hearts could be lifted by your kindness and your grace as we gaze upon your presence, as we have a fresh awareness of your magnificent grace and that our hearts would incline to love you and serve you with all that we have because you are truly great and awesome and mighty and powerful and wonderful God. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life that we might have life everlasting. So in his honor we pray. And in his name we pray, amen. So I want to introduce you to the woman who single-handedly changed the aesthetics of this sacred desk, if we can call it that. No longer a water bottle here, but a mug. My mother. Mom, stand up. Stand up, Mom. I'm so grateful to have her here this morning with us and you should know that she was so excited to come and worship here with her favorite child <laughs> that she woke my sister up at 2.30 a.m. ready to go thinking it was time to go. So they, uh, they said if they nod off over there it's not because I'm boring because I am my mother's favorite preacher, as you would expect. So it's so good to have her here. Well, um, how do you follow up from the Gospel of John, which is such a magnificent gospel and it highlights the Son of God, the apex. And um, as I was planning this series of John, I, I knew that I left a little bit of room at the end because I wasn't certain that how the Lord would lead and I wanted to make sure there was a little bit of buffer space. And uh, so here, here we are, five sermons until September 10th. So that's uh, in, when people are talking about retirement, they talk about counting down the last week. So this is basically my last week, five days, because I only work one day a week, so. <laughs> so here it is, five, five more days. So what do you do with those five days? So I thought what I would do is, um, is share with you life and ministry lessons sourced out of the Psalms of the magnificence of God and what I have learned about God and how great he is. And um, so I hope you will find it helpful for you. I, I know you will. As I think about the rich privilege it has been to, to shepherd 
this great people, um, I'm, I'm never, I never ever take for granted what God has done or is doing. And I find myself constantly amazed that he would allow me to, to, to have this responsibility. I always think of myself as least likely, or at least very close to least likely, to have such a, an awesome assignment. And so I can, I can legitimately say that I am a grateful ragamuffin for what God has done and what God does. And I'm grateful that God chooses to use ragamuffins to do things, to bring them into his family and to accomplish things in his great name. Because the truth of the matter is, when you think about having the opportunity to lead this great company of people, leadership, when I was younger, leadership always bypassed me. I was never a captain, I was never the class rep, I never got the awards of notoriety. I um, sort of majored in ordinary in life, maybe below ordinary, too small, too meek, too quiet, too obscure, not unpopular, just, well, too ordinary. So nothing has shocked anybody more than it shocked me that God would, first of all, pick me into his family and then to give me this great assignment. So I want you to know that, that um, every day I consider it a great honor and privilege to have this responsibility. And, and this story that I want to share with you today that, that means so much to me as a result of that is, is one that I think everyone can relate to. I think it's for everyone. It's about God using the ordinary. Whether he gives you the assignment to be king of Israel or queen of Israel or whatever, or, or to be um, an obscure widow who's claim to fame was tossing two mites into the offering plate. God chooses ragamuffins to do his great work. So I would invite you to turn with me today to 1 Samuel chapter 16 because you can't really do a Psalms project and I, I steal that title from Mike Jensen and... and uh, Aaron Schust and everybody who's doing their Psalms projects these days. This is Rick's Psalms project. And you can't begin a Psalms project without looking at the life of David. And so I want you to look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 16. Because truly it is the story of a ragamuffin, well, a ruddy ragamuffin of Bethlehem. The house of bread. If you were to ask the vast majority of people in our world, where is Bethlehem or what's Bethlehem, most would not know. If you said Jerusalem, they would, but saying Bethlehem, we in Christianity think, oh, Bethlehem, that's a, that's a great and important place. It's, it's a nothing place. It's still a nothing place. 
out of which came spectacular things. And that's the way God works. It's like saying, where's Curtis? <laughs> Sorry, everybody. When we moved here, we looked at a house in Curtis. And Jordan, who was then, what, 13, 12, I forget, something. He said, look at Dad. If we're moving to Oshawa, I'm not living in Curtis. <laughs> Nobody will ever know what that is. So we bought a house in Oshawa. So as you're opening your Bibles, the context is the messianic expectations of kings. Once God permitted Israel to have a king, the idea was messianic anticipation. Since God is the king, each of the kings that came along were to be vice-regents of the king of kings. We've been singing about the king this morning, theming on God as king. And, and that was what the earthly kings were to be vice-regents representing the standards and of God and influencing people toward who God was until the great Messiah would come. This is why, this is why the, the Jews were so confused by Jesus because in the long line of Messiahs, they were to be kings. Kings that represented the king of kings. Jesus came humbly the form of a, 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 in the form of a human and so they were to be symbolic of, of uh, a Messiah. And then from the house of David arises the eternal dynasty of God's kingdom. Jesus, Messiah, being the fulfillment of God's salvation promise to those who would receive the merits of his sacrifice, which we will celebrate in a few moments. We are saved because of his sacrifice. Not the merits of our own good works, but the merits of Jesus' sacrifice that satisfied a holy God on our behalf as our substitute. So let's, um, let's read this short text, 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said, which is why Samuel was a man after God's own heart. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled. When they met him, they asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. 
Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought uh, had him brought him in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, arise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah, which was his home. This is God's word. Something I have learned, God doesn't need anything in a leader or a fruitful servant that humans consider essential. And I want to show you how this unfolds in this particular incident. First of all, God does the selecting because his vision is superior to that of humans. God's vision is superior to that of humans. What, what do you look for when you're awarding a significant assignment to someone? Oh, an assignment, for instance, like being a disciple of Jesus Christ or an ambassador of the Lord or, or a king. What do you look for? In verse 7, it tells us what God looks for. Man looks at the outward appearance. Verse 7, but the Lord looks at the heart. Saul was literally tall, dark, and handsome. Now, that would sound so cliche if it wasn't actually recorded in the scriptures. And in, in the event that you're not believing me, I want to show you it. In 1 Samuel 9, verse 2, where we're talking about Saul the Benjamite and his, his being anointed as king, it says there in the text, in, in, the, in the NIV, it says, he had a son named Saul, an impressive young man, without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. But in the, in the uh, legacy standard uh, version, which I really like, uh, next generation New American Standard, it says this, he was choice, he was handsome, there was not a more handsome person among the sons of Israel. He was tall, dark, and handsome. Just the way we pick. Saul had won the People's Choice Award. In fact, in um, the choosing of King Saul in 1 Samuel 8, 22, we get there a hint of what God thinks of this particular appointment when it says, when God says to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. I'm gonna come back to that. I want you to pay attention to those words very, very particularly. And now Saul is under divine impeachment. By the time we get to 1 Samuel chapter 16, Saul is under divine impeachment. Saul has been in office now for 27 years, something we should pay attention to. 
When we read the text of this story, we think Saul became king, messed up, was rejected by God in two weeks. That's not how this worked. Factum, Saul was king until he was 72. He was king for 42 years. And the mess up, the, the, the last straw mess up occurred when he was 27 years into ministry with God. Saul, by the way, was chosen to be king because the people had rejected God as their king, 1 Samuel 8, 7. It says there, they wanted to be just like other nations. And in their choosing, they didn't want a king who would treat God as king either. They, they said very blatantly, we want him to judge among us. Literally, not God anymore. We want him to judge among us. So Saul settled into office, praising and pleasing himself and pleasing everybody else. Among the battles that believers face, like you and me, one of the most challenging is to decide who we are going to please in our lives. Are we going to be people pleasers? Or are we going to please the Lord? Because if we are people pleasers, we'll be popular for a season, but the end results will be disastrous, as they were for Saul. And, and it says here, Samuel was mourning him just before, and, and, and the Lord says to Samuel, how long are you gonna mourn this guy? I've rejected him as king of Israel. But he serves as king for 15 more years. Saul specialized in partial obedience of the Lord, picking and choosing the things that he would obey. We have a lot of that going on around us today. And I'm particular, particularly referring to religious circles. We have a lot of religious leadership, so-called Christian religious leadership, picking and choosing what they will obey from God's word. That's what Saul did. He specialized in that. When it pleased the people to go this way, he went that way, even if it displeased God, even if it went against God's word. At Gilgal, he presumed upon the prophetic role and offered sacrifices that he was not supposed to. Chapter 13, verse 12. He failed to fully destroy the possessions of the Amalekites and in chapter 15, verse 9, he said, he said to Samuel in, in his excuse, these they were unwilling to destroy. These they didn't, the men didn't want to destroy these, so I, what could I do? And then after that, if that isn't bad enough, Samuel comes looking for him and they say, oh, Saul is out erecting a monument to his own significance. A leader is always in trouble when he or she decides to start acting like a king or a queen. A lot of ministries are tanking because somewhere along the line, the leader who started out with humility and a sense of commitment to the Lord somehow became full of themselves. Haughty, 
possessing, owning the office of leadership, crowning themselves king, and leaving a wake of disaster. So the response from the Lord is, I'm going to send you to, the, to Jesse the Bethlehemite for, I want you to notice in verse 1, for I have chosen one of his sons to be king. In the best translation of this, it reads this way, for I see among his sons a king for me. The emphasis is on myself. They picked their king and I showed them what it looks like to ignore my wisdom. Now I'm going to pick a king for me. God sees people from an entirely different vantage point. We need to overcome our superficial natural instincts to pick on the basis of outward appearances. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. Chapter 13, verse 14. Know this when it comes to serving the Lord. Success or rejection are totally dependent on our recognition of God's authority and a genuinely repentant heart when we mess up. Okay? The difference between Saul and David couldn't be more stark in this particular reality. Know this, whoever you are, success or rejection is totally dependent on your recognition of God's authority and a genuinely repentant heart when you mess up. Saul used God for position. He didn't obey God. Saul refused to be accountable when he sinned, blaming other people or attacking his accusers. David, on the other hand, obeyed the Lord and repented when he sinned. That's the difference. So secondly, God doesn't need great, below ordinary will do. So the prophet Samuel was sent on a mission to hunt hunt for a replacement king. The house of Jesse. Seven stately sons are paraded in front of him. And when Samuel sees Eliab, tall, dark, and handsome, he sees Saul again. And he says, surely the Lord's anointed is standing before me. And then parades six more brothers, tall and handsome. And Samuel has immediate man crush on them. And the Lord says to Samuel, Sammy, you're going to make the same mistake. Remember, it's about the heart. It's about the heart, Samuel. So Samuel says, is this all you have? 
And the father, Jesse, in verse 11, says this. There is still the youngest. The word there is katan. Literally means the small one, the extra, the not needed, the unimportant. That's what the word is used for. When you use that word katan, it, it can mean, of course, youngest, it can, but it means extra, the unimportant, the one not needed. Samuel, he's not needed for this kingly pageant. He's, he's unimportant. He's babysitting sheep, Samuel. And he's the eighth. <laughs> the eighth in a line of, of sons. Not the first. It should be the firstborn, right, Wendy? It should always be the firstborn. Or at the very least, it could be the seventh because the seventh would be the son symbolizing completeness. But the eighth? Whoever appoints the eighth to something important? Who picks the runt of the litter? Well, you know, a babysitter of sheep might be just perfect for the job. Being outgunned your whole life forces you to look beyond yourself for help. Lift up your eyes to the hills. Where does your help come from? Your help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Ragamuffins, runts of the world. Lift up your eyes. Where does your help really come from? Your physical attributes, of which you have none, or very few. So when David was, out, when David was relying on God to help him kill bears and lions, Saul was self-consciously hiding from Samuel's job offer to be king. Now, some of us think, oh, that was a, an act of humility. Saul is hiding, hiding the baggage so he can't be pulled out to be king. That's, I don't take it that way. Saul had spent a lifetime relying on his own physical attributes. And now when someone came tapping him on the shoulder for a big assignment, he ran and hid because... The assignment was too big for his physical attributes and he had never been trained in lifting up his eyes to the hills to look for where his help would come from. But runts and ragamuffins learn this. That's why God picks us. That's why the Apostle Paul could remind everybody in 1 Corinthians 2, First Corinthians 1. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. 
Verse 26, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. The Apostle Paul learned these lessons himself and at the end of, of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Paul learned this with a weakness that he was going through. He, he learned from the Lord as the Lord said to him, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. God doesn't need great. Below ordinary will do just fine. And by the way, God regularly favors the late born. That's good news for you, Pastor Calvin. Jacob over Esau. Joseph over all his brothers. Judah over Reuben. And the one who comes at the end of the Davidic line in the form of an infant, lowly, a suffering servant, not what they would have expected. Isaiah writes in 53, 2-3, he had no stately form or majesty that we should look at him, nor appearance that we should desire him, like one from whom men hide their face. This is Messiah. Not tall, dark, and handsome. Just glorious in the Lord. This is why so many people miss out on Christianity. They're looking for the wrong things. They're looking for the the dazzling, the great, the the awesome, and and they become distracted by the, the ordinariness of it. They look longingly at wrong things in this world. And in not wanting God as king, they stumble over the Lord himself who would rescue them, the rock that makes men stumble, who would rescue them because they choose different, more glitzy Hollywood-type kings and miss salvation and live out disappointing lives. Finally, since God overwhelms those who are his with his spirit, who what presently is isn't so important because he determines what will be. So David isn't impressive. Oh, he's ruddy and handsome, but he's young and inexperienced. And Samuel anoints him to be king of Israel, the most important king next to Jesus ever. 
God doesn't need what is. We pick what is. God picks for what will be. At the time that the people insisted on a king, a king wasn't needed. It wasn't the right time. There was going to be kings. That, that is established in Deuteronomy. It's not like there wasn't going to be kings. There was going to be symbolic messiahs. There was. That was planned. But that wasn't the time to be king. The people insisted on a king out of time and out of season. Listen. Sometimes God gives us what we insist upon to teach us to pay better attention to his will. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. Saul was given as a concession. Samuel, go ahead, give them a king. They're not rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me. They're rejecting God. That's what that king, the Saul was the symbol of the rejection of God. A king was needed, but not at that moment. The people forced it and God permitted it. And they reaped the tragic fallout of that decision. And so will we if we insist on going against God's will. Sometimes to teach us a difficult lesson, God gives us what we ask him for. And the results can be disastrous. Physical giftedness tends to enamor humans. But God has a whole other set of remarkable gifts to give. In verse 13, the story concludes this way. From that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Beloved ragamuffins, that's all we need. The Spirit of Almighty God upon us. The power of God. It's the definitive attribute of the believer. The Spirit of God. Is God with you? I think we ask a question in stories of the Bible, and with this I'll conclude. Why does a sovereign God allow such a messy world filled with useless ragamuffins? He's a sovereign, all-powerful, almighty God. Well, the short answer is, he chooses not to judge sin final judgment of sin early and we're all thankful for that as much as we struggle in it but more importantly is this that out of the foggy mess of human failure God reveals his grace keep in mind that the stories in the scriptures and our lives are carried forth that God might reveal 
all of his characteristics to us. And it's in the, in the time when we are neck deep in the messy mire of humanness that God chooses to reveal to us how incredibly gracious he is that he would choose to love us and care for us. And beloved, it's in the mess of life that we really need to know who God is. Knowing who God is really matters then. And so we can thank him that he allows us to navigate through this messy world and he in turn reveals to us who he really is. So I look at that verse on the wall in conclusion and say, oh magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Ragamuffins. Our Father, I thank you so much for your grace and your love for us. Oh, Lord, thank you for reaching down into our lives and rescuing us, choosing the runts of the litter that you might demonstrate your great power to save and empower to change us to be more and more like the image of Christ Jesus. And so we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. The old prophet Samuel, disappointed with the failures of his own sons and the colossal collapse of the people's choice king, whispers in the shepherd's boy's the shepherd boy's ear as the anointing oil flows from his head down over his neck. You're going to be the next king. And the grace of God is at that moment demonstrated in full form. Millennia later, a greater king, prophet and priest, whispered into your ragamuffin heart while the anointing of the Holy Spirit flowed over you. You are going to be my child. And in your life, the grace of God has been fully revealed in your ragamuffin heart. Oh, let us exalt his name together. Our Father, we praise you and thank you. You are a great and awesome God. Thank you for your salvation through Jesus Christ to all those who trust in the merits of Christ for their salvation. May it be so in all of the hearts among us, I pray, for Jesus' sake, amen and amen.